0: We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, Tonight is our last event of 2013. And uh, I really appreciate everyone who has been here throughout the year at all of our events. It's really been a, a fantastic year. So we're going to end the event schedule with one for the fans, and the book is called Imus, Mike and the Mad Dog, and Doris from Rigo Park, The Groundbreaking History of WFAN, published by Triumph Books. Uh, Please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse the author Tim Sullivan and our special guest. Welcome home to Rich Ackerman. And since this one is for the fans, and really it's at the thrust of what WFN is all about, we're going to leave, I think we're going to make most of tonight about questions from our, our sure. nice crowd that we have tonight. Sure. But if uh, if you would, Tim, just to maybe la- lay the foundation, uh, just start us off with how this book even came to be.
1: Uh, it's a good question. something I always wanted to do. Um, I grew up listening to the fan, I remember I was 14 years old when it came on, and uh, just like so many guys that uh, are on the station now and are in the book, you know, I listened to it on my way to school every day and came home and uh, Steve Summers got me through college uh, on the overnights uh, pulling some all nighters and uh, it 's always something I wanted to do. I wanted to break into radio, and I realized quickly in college that I could write about sports better than I could talk about it um, so you know i 'd always put it in the back of my mind to someday write this book. I was surprised as the years kind of peeled off that no one had ever done it. Um, and uh, so when I was able to, fortunate enough to write my first book last year, um, I wrote a book about the Rangers and Devils series in 1994. I ended up talking to so many hosts and former hosts from the fan about that series, about the 94 Rangers, about what 94 in the spring here in New York meant to so many people and I kind of floated the idea to a lot of those guys at the end of the interview I said hey what would you think about a book like this and uh, at the time the ESPN book was out and it was sort of uh, becoming an in thing to sort of uh, talk about uh, people who talk about sports and uh, uh, so I gave it a shot and uh, fortunately between you know the success of my first book and making some connections through that uh, I was able to pull this off and uh, from there um, you know as Rich will tell you it, it kind of took off became a book about the hosts and the people that listen to him really I mean it was when the great thing about writing a book about uh, professional talkers is that's exactly what they do for a living and, and all you had to do is kind of open the mic and let them go uh, so realistically it's it's an oral history uh, told by the hosts from 1986 all the way through today
0: and actually I'm, I just want to read one of the blurbs on the back of the book and then sure. I'd like either you and/ or rich to just comment on this uh, I love this one it was uh, by Jim Lampley mm-hmm. uh, the very first day I wrote an opening manifesto and basically what I said was this was a medium that was going to change the universe people were going to quit their jobs to stay home and listen to us people were going to sit on hold for hours and hours and hours waiting to be put on the air so they can say the Mets suck <laughs> and uh, and all of the things that I predicted, facetiously, of course, turned out to be true.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the first voice heard on the fan, the first show uh, on the fan, which was Jim Lampley's, and he was uh, part of a, a movement uh, in the early days that was a national movement. Uh, and uh, while Jim uh, and the fan quickly realized that the station needed to be about New York for New York, um, most of them, like Jim, still have a very good sense of humor about the fact that they uh, sort of laid the groundwork, but also uh, failed along the way. So, uh, but obviously, so many of them have done, gone on to do better, do great things, and uh, they have no problem talking about uh, their early days with the Fan. And uh, it was it was stories like that, and there was a million of them in the million that didn't make the book um, that uh, that really made me you know, realize that I did something
0: worthwhile. And uh, Rich, if you could, I know a lot of the, the the people here listening to the podcast, the listeners in general, to, to Fan. They don't really know what the station looks like, and not so much today, but when you started working there, if you could just kind of give started. us a little uh, visual <laughs> tour of that.
2: Uh, I think Mike Francesa probably said it best. He said it was the Boston Garden without the tradition. That was what the story <laughs> of studios looked like. Now now there couldn't be nicer. It's sort of like we've, we've moved from the Boston Garden to that, that brand-new arena, but uh, it really was, you know, I, I don't remember who exactly... Coined this phrase, but uh, somebody said, you know, radio is a lot of theater in the mind. Um, and that's what the Astoria Studios. I mean, if you want to, you know, think about, you know, this dungeon of a place uh, that we used to work <laughs> in, and I don't mean it to be that it was, you know, a terrible place, but we were in the sub sub cellar. So, meaning you had to go up two floors just to get to the ground floor. <laughs> uh, when the blackout of 03 hit, um, I was working that day, and a lot of us just figured, you know, we had a power it, but having no idea what really happened, because you know, you know, the the, the safety lights went on, so we figured, okay, something, you know, the <laughs> power surge probably hit, and it wasn't till, and I don't, I'm not really sure why um, we all went outside afterwards. i I'm not, I can't really remember that, but I just remember that um, it seemed like the thing to do. You know, we thought maybe there was a fire drill in the building or something. And it wasn't until we got outside that we saw suddenly there was a, a lot of commotion in the streets. And, and you know, I still didn't grasp the enormity of the situation. Probably thought, well, it must be something going on in the neighborhood now. You know, and it wasn't until I got into a friend's car, we turned on the radio, that we realized that I found out that it was a blackout up and down the East Coast. So uh, that kind of gives you an indication of how uh, you know submerged we were, but uh, it was this small you know small area. Um, the newsroom was was much smaller than this room that we are in now, uh, maybe half the size of that, and there was no windows. Uh, it was an older studio. I worked I worked a couple of nights on the Super Bowl, and without fail, each time. Uh, at halftime, the toilets overflowed upstairs, and suddenly <laughs> all of the, he- you know, the heavens comes, you know, this, this water cascading throughout the newsroom, <laughs> you didn't know where to hide, uh, and actually it happened right before or right during uh, one Mike and the Mad Dog show one day. Um, so that was pretty much what the newsroom looked like, and it was, you know, there a small place, as I said, no windows, not much air, um, you know, the, the ceiling panels were stained, you had wires hanging <laughs> down from the top. I mean, it was—if you want to uh, imagine, you know, that type of atmosphere—that's—it's that's pretty much what it was like.
0: So, <laughs> the glamorous world of radio, yep, exactly. So, <laughs> and before we uh, open it up for some questions, uh, Tim, if you could just give us like the the uh, the, fa- the real foundation of how this station came. Not we went through how the book came to be. Now, if mm-hmm. you could tell us how the station came to be.
1: Right. Well, Jeff Smolian is a, uh, you know, a radio wizard, I would guess, I would say, you know, a CEO of a company called MS Communications who um, you know, had – he was a dreamer. There's no question about it. Uh, and uh, radio is full of them. But one thing that Jeff had and MS Communications had uh, was dollars behind dreams and they're an Indianapolis-based company that was acquiring radio stations in in the 80s and uh, gobbling up what they could in in any city they could uh, that they thought was worthwhile. And it was just at the time in the mid-80s where FM was sort of breaking off into radio only, uh, music only, and uh, AM was becoming talk, and it was a lot of news talk was out there, uh, a lot of all news stations, a lot of talk uh, radio uh, shows were out there, but nothing for sports, and uh, Jeff uh, had always thought that it would work and could work, and when he was in college and he was kicking around ideas of how he was going to change the world, he always said, mm-hmm. I think someone needs to try sports radio one of these days, and New York is the place to do it. And, uh, and so one of these days, he brought he brought that up in meetings and, and was sort of Buddha out of the conference room mm-hmm. in Indianapolis and uh, just kept going with it. Uh, and he struck out a bunch of times, and eventually someone above him said, you know what, you've been doing great work here, and uh, we owe you a favor. Uh, We think this is going to flop, and uh, we think you're crazy, but let's give it a shot. Uh, So they tried it in New York, and and they had a a vision of what they wanted to do with it. Um, It wasn't necessarily the right one. As I mentioned, they they wanted to go globally, and they wanted to uh, incorporate all the world of sports and and broadcast from New York, but to the masses, long before the Internet did it. And um, they found that it just didn't work. So they gobbled up all these national hosts, hosts with names, and and people who uh, knew not just New York sports, but all of sports. Um, and they gave it a shot, and it, and it wasn't working. Uh, there weren't there wasn't any advertising dollars. There wasn't any ratings. And, you know, Howie Rose, uh, uh, who's, you know, encyclopedia of, of baseball uh, history, sports history, but mostly above all else, in my opinion, sports radio history, uh, put it best where he just got up one day and said, you know what, if, if uh, you, know, you want the station to be in New York, but it's got to be about New York. Um, and eventually they got that. And, and they went through a, a, a long, you know, cycle of turnover where they eventually had pretty much all New York tied in hosts, uh, and, that's what, and, and then, and then IMIS came along uh, with that, and that's where it really began to take off. But uh, So it really, to answer your question, the long version of it was, uh, just like so much else in radio and entertainment world, uh, Jeff had a vision. He wanted to try it. He knew New York was a place to do it, and he knew AM was a, was a, a, a trending sort of a, a, a signal that um, people were going through for information but nobody was going to for all sports information. So he gave it a shot, and, uh, you know, 27 years later, he's, uh, he's a pretty smart man.
0: <laughs> from the time when uh, he had this first vision until it started to really do well, wh- how long it was that?
1: It wasn't very long between he got the okay from the, uh, from the MS uh, CEO uh, until he put, put it on air. Um, he gave it a shot. I think he want, he started in '85. He kept on going back in, and by early '86, he was uh, early uh, early '85. He had the OK to start looking for people, uh, looking for people to run the station, looking for the station to buy. Uh, so it was really once he got the OK, it was less than two years before you know we were on the air with, with Susan Waldman and, and Jim Lampley.
0: Right. Well. Wow an amazing, uh, amazing beginning. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And he's,
1: uh, you know, Jeff is, is still in the business and, uh, you know, he's, he's very proud uh, of what the, the fan has done and what sports radio has become it's very humble. He doesn't really look at himself as someone who started sports radio, but uh, anyone who listens to the fan and uh, certainly listened to the 25th anniversary show uh, last summer uh, knows that uh, you know Mike almost led, you know, virtually led the show with, with Jeff and, uh, you know, everybody uh, who knows you know, the roots of the fan and and Sports Radio knows who Jeff is and appreciates him for what he's done even though he's very humble and he puts it on the talent like a good producer, a good CEO would uh, (laughs) but realistically, Sports Radio started with with a vision from Jeff Yeah,
0: Very interesting So since the station is really about to to some degree, it's really about the callers Absolutely Absolutely. I think we should maybe open it up for questions for Tim and for Rich Uh, Does anyone want to lead us off? all of a sudden they're very shy (laughs) here well
1: how how did you put together this group of New York sports casters that you you could you know deal with the market here in New York you know it's uh, um, I think one thing led to another Uh, I think you know when I went to the uh, the bosses at FAN um, who have changed uh, since uh, day one um you know, they came to me, and, and Mark Turnoff, uh, who Rich can tell you a few stories about, I'm sure, um, is nothing if not thorough. And uh, I talked to him a couple times about other things, and I mentioned to him in passing, you know, I'd like to do this. And uh, he said, I can't do his voice, well. I'm sure Rich can. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, he said, go ahead. You know, go, ahead uh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. There's go ahead. a lot of people. <laughs> I, don't, who, I don't know
2: how much Mike will talk to you, but, you know, right. it, 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 yeah. you do. <laughs> I can't tell you who's going to talk to you. Is that Woody Allen? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's exactly like Woody Allen. His speech pattern is exactly like Woody Allen.
1: <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so I can't tell you how many people uh, have come to me about this, people who have done newspaper articles and said, hey, this would be a great book. People who are, cover the media here in New York and said, I would like to write some of write a book." uh but every time i and i tell them every time i have the blessing you have the blessing come come forth and we'll get you as much access as we can but i, I i'd be surprised if you can pull it off because no one ever comes back to me so uh so i kind of took that as motivation and uh, i had already had a couple contacts at the station and just one thing led to another i think once i talked to a few people i think it probably got passed around the station that i was doing this book and mm-hmm. Uh, that it would be uh, a good thing to be a part of it. Um, And I think also as those interviews started to peel off, I think people started to realize that I wasn't trying to, you know, spill anything that people didn't, you know, maybe want to have out there, sort of like the ESPN book did. I didn't want to sling any mud at all these people. This was a station that I grew up loving, and I wanted to write this book for what it was. Uh, And I think as we started to build up that interview base, people realized that that's what I was after. And uh, the more I got, you know, to people, that led to some more people, and I said, we'll try this guy, and, and next thing you know, I was uh, I was fighting him off. So, uh, you know, like I said, I probably could have written three books with all the material I had, but I had to keep it down to one.
0: And, Rich, when you uh, when you started, who did you start working with? Uh, my first
2: shift uh, was August 5th, 1997. Uh, that was actually when I trained, so I actually started doing the afternoon, so, uh, or Technically, there was still still the midday and then the afternoon, so it was the uh, daytime shift. So that was my first. I was actually a freelancer for about the first five to six months, and then uh, in December of '97, 97, 97, yes, '97, 97, uh, a full time opening uh, came about, and well, suddenly I was sitting at home one day, and the phone rings, and it's Mark Chernoff. He says, I, if we gave you a full time job, <laughs> is, that is that something that would interest you? Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wasn't, wasn't much more than that. You think it's, it's a big negotiation, <laughs> was it? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, so, uh, but I actually at the time did want to. I was uh, I was working at ESPN Radio, which at the time was only a, a weekend operation in Bristol, and I'd probably work you know a couple of shifts at FAA during the week as uh, as they would come about. And and back in those days, the uh, the schedule was a lot different. It changed from week-to-week, week almost day-to-day, day because a lot of guys had, like John Minko at the time when we had the Knicks, uh, used to do the Knicks pre- and post-game show from probably February on, because uh, Susan Waldman had done it uh, from October until February, and then when she went with the Yankees. So that was the way the shifts came about. Um, so there were you know, certain times when, uh, some weeks there were more shifts than others, but uh, then they finally offered me a full-time job. And I, I enjoyed working there, and honestly, too, I, I did not love going to Bristol, but um, Sam might have stories from, from his son, Willie, uh, about that. But um, I didn't particularly enjoy, enjoy Bristol. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have anything against the ESPN. I, I didn't enjoy my time there. But uh, I, lo- I was a New York kid. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and I, I wanted to be here. And it just uh, and the other thing, too, uh, about FAN, which I think um, people realize in this room is the immediacy of it. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, um, people said, "Hey, I heard you on the radio," and, and I never really, you know, got into it for that reason. But I was like, "Wow, it's pretty, pretty interesting. It's uh, it's pretty unique." So I was like, "Yeah, it's not kind of a bad feeling to have." So uh, you know, that that certainly went into went into my decision as well.
1: They really do become rock stars, uh, especially with the, uh, you know, in two thousand two, when they, when Mike and Chris started uh, were being aired on, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, IMS was on TV and mm-hmm. Boomer and Carton had their time and they're going back to it. Um, that sort of uh, escalated, uh, the hosts and the update people, uh, to unbelievable heights and, uh, they get noticed uh, <coughs> almost everywhere now and, uh, it has a lot to do with, the not only their voices, but, you know, their, their faces. Now, Steve Summers tells a, a good story with Evan Roberts about going to uh, City Field a couple of years ago. And, you know, Steve Summers, who's not on TV a lot, but he's on enough be, and he's recognizable enough uh, that people uh, can, you know, know him. And here's Evan, who's on the, on the air uh, at a different time of day. It's probably more uh, out there and more recognizable. And, and uh, they were walking through the runways of City Field, and Steve Summers was the one who got stopped for autographs and not Evan Roberts. And uh, you know, he tells that story, uh, they both tell a story better than I do, but uh, that's, that's part of the appeal of the fan, and, and I think, quite frankly, why a lot of them don't. A lot of people have moved on, but a lot of people don't want to move on because of uh, not only what the fan can do for them as a, you know, in a career, but also socially and, and being out there as well.
2: Didn't find me a girlfriend. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but, but, but you know, Tim's right in the sense that it, uh, so much for video killing the radio star Because uh, that put a face on all of us and Suddenly, uh, we went to really another level after that I mean, I think Jay has been with me several times I remember we were coming out from the Giant game on a Sunday night and We were in the Port Authority at, uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning And some guy's yelling, you know what happened here, but you know, that's, uh, I mean, it, it, and, and it's not like I was on all day. So for people to really recognize me, I thought took a lot. So.
1: Right. And I think a lot of that, you know, what Rich talks about is true. And I, I think a lot of what what has helped uh, update people on TV and even off TV is, is uh, and some hosts do it better than others, is opening up the mic to them. And, you know, Kevin Burkhardt, who's, you know, obviously you guys know uh, the Mets field reporter out for SNY and now is on Fox doing football games you know tells good stories about when he first got on and you know he's, he goes up to his first update and he's nervous and his reports are, are rattling and you know and uh, a guy like Chris Russo you know talks to him after you know uh, after the update and, you, know, who, you know where are you from how would you get here and uh, you know that's that means a lot to a lot of people. Certainly, the people who he's talking about, but certainly talking to. And when I, you know, when I long before Kevin was on TV, if I had done this book four or five years ago, I I knew Kevin Burkhardt as the guy that Chris Russo would ride a little bit on Saturday mornings, and kind of joke with. And and uh, I think you know, I wasn't alone. And so. Um, You know, I think that helps people's marketability. And uh, so it's amazing what, I said, some hosts do that better than others. Some hosts want the mic to themselves. But I think opening up uh, the mic and and asking uh, the update people for more than just updates goes a long, long way.
0: Speaking of uh, writing, uh, dare I bring up Imus? (laughs) Sure. Any... uh, any uh, comments about your time with with Imus?
3: You know, I,
2: he was kind of an interesting character, and in that's it, there's a. I think I even mentioned this to Tim is when you when you get asked about what people like at the station, and I, my answer always was is the way they seem on the air is the same way they are off the air, and uh, the joke with Imus was that uh, it didn't uh, you didn't make eye contact with them. And you—you you just spoke to him when he spoke to you. That was the rule. Uh, for
3: some reason, we—I
2: I mean, I got along with him well. Um, I'm not really sure why, <laughs> but I did. Um, and I guess he—you know—he found my quirks uh, something to put on the show. But uh, there were a couple of times I—I I somehow went on there, um, and uh, they were—they were, they were some memorable exchanges. The one thing I remember. Uh, I got called into the studio, and you're know, like, "Do I go in?" Like, "Yeah, you go in." You know, <laughs> thinking, or, you know, you sit there, and I do remember the first time I was on with Imus. The one thing that I remember the most was it was, and I was you know, obviously in, in the studio with hundreds of times, and if not thousands, with Mike and Chris. And you know, you know, they're looking in all different directions, and they're swaying with arms and all this stuff. And you walk into Imus' studio, and it was really intense. It was. Very quiet, um, and when I spoke to you, he looked right at you, and right in your eyes, and you couldn't you couldn't miss it. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, for a second, it was intimidating. You just had to get used to it because it was funny. There was when I first got to Mike and Chris, and you know, they're looking in different directions and flailing and all that. I, I got accustomed to that very quickly. I never really took personally they weren't looking at me. I didn't care, um, but. I got so used to that. I guess it was so easy. But then when you walk in and Imus is looking straight at you, and for a second, it, 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 it's a little bit of an adjustment. But uh, but we had some we had some fun times. I think my favorite story though with Imus was, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately he's he's had some health issues over the years, uh, uh, and he has uh, you know he had a collapsed lung. And one day, uh, you know, I he had a news writer. I somebody may or may not know, but I often will clean off. The surfaces before going on the air, and it started because um, there was a staffer at the at the station who was not particularly a neat person. It was really really bad, and I don't know. And I just kind of got into a habit. So sure enough, he comes over one day to the, the desk that I was sitting at, and he licks the phone. And about, <laughs> and about two weeks later, he comes up to me. He was not it. and He says uh, he comes up to me and goes, "Hey, Rich." I got pneumonia after you're licking your phone. So I look at him and I said, well, who, tells you, who told you to lick my phone? Said, Especially before I cleaned
0: it. And he looked at me and he goes, oh my God.
2: Oh, that's a good point. And that was the conversation. But, you know, we sort of had that exchange. You know, FAN, you know, for all of its pluses and minuses over the years, it, it's, pretty, it's a pretty eclectic bunch of people. You know, but I was all the way through to Mike and Chris and, uh, you know, Steve Summers is, uh, is a true character and I say that lovingly. Uh, so we, we've just had a lot of fun over the years and there's, there's never been a dull moment, that's for sure.
1: So When you have a, uh, a show, do you have a format to say, I have this many hours, we're going to devote this to... Um, you know, when I've done
2: shows, it's been a little different. It's been more, like, geared towards something in particular. Hypothetically, the NFL, um, but for the most part, you know the guys just. I think it's it's a gut feeling. Guys just go in and boom. You know, it's funny. I always thought because I had listened to the station for many years when I first got there, I thought that you know Mike and Chris talked about what they were going to talk about before the show. And, you know, they'd have a meeting. All right, we're, we're going <laughs> to do this. We're going to construct and and basically it's it's all simultaneous. I mean, it's uh, you know it's all ad lib for, for the most part. I mean maybe somebody has you know an idea of what they want to do at a particular time or, or juncture, but uh, for the most part just lying by the seat of your penance. So. Uh,
4: so I, have, I have two cool questions. The first one is um, with kind of the intimate nature of radio, you mentioned you know, the theater of the mind and all that, can you really have a pretty special connection with your listeners because you're listening through it and you can't see anything so I, don't know, I feel like when I talk to friends of mine who are passionate radio fans they seem to really feel like they know their beyond-air the host a lot more than say like a letterman or a letter or something like that so is there ever any I don't know if fear is the right word but apprehension about you know some of the callers that call in that there might be a bit of a disconnect where if you do you said that you've been recognized a couple of times hey I heard you on the radio has there ever been any fear of okay is this guy kind of you know, it, it, I don't know it, that's
3: basically it's all based on the movie big fan I don't movie. think
2: it's been that um, there have been people that called me in the newsroom and called other people in the newsroom uh, back in the day um, and there was one, one person who I was foolish enough to lend $50 uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but other than that you know, it's, it's, it's okay um, I guess we're fortunate in that sense
4: Okay, And then you were talking about a little video kill, the radio star myth. With this completely, I'm just assuming that right now, I know the radio business overall might be somewhat, you know, not where it was 20 years ago, but sports talk must be still somewhere near the top. Is that something that, you know, programmers or or, or you or whoever's in the the, the, uh, sports radio business, are you guys projecting in the future if that's going to continue or with, like, MLB at Bat is a great app, but that might take people away from listening to a particular station. Let me just listen to the right. broadcast of the game, but I'm not going to listen to sports talk pre-game, post-game. Right. I'm just going to listen to it at Bat. Is that something that is a concern? Or, or well, sports radio,
1: Rich can, can chime in on this too, to, to me is one of the few mediums doing well at, yeah. know, in sports journalism right now. As print seems to be going, uh, you know, shrinking by the day, and uh, even websites that we thought might change the world haven't. Um, You know, and and just within the last year, you know, there's two new sports radio national networks, you know, CBS right down the street here with with Rich. And, um, you know, I I think that more and more people are are, uh, finding jobs in sports radio. A lot of people are leaving print and TV backgrounds to go on to radio. Uh, There's more opportunity for them. There's more forum to kind of say what they want to say. Um, And, you know, it's it's it's. It's only going up. Now, is everybody making millions off it like some of uh, the guys in the van are? I don't know. Um, but, it, you know, is it, a, is it a secure career path? Uh, I, you know, it's, it's still tough to break into. Uh, but there's a whole lot more opportunity now for people coming into the business than were know, 20,
2: one, 30 years ago. The one thing that I think is unique about the format, and I don't know where it will go in five or ten years from now only because – Everything seems to change so quickly. I I do think they'll get us probably safe, but the one thing about the format, I think, more so than any other, um, is the something that's called time spent listening, and I think the average time spent listening by your typical uh, listener is is enormous, and so you know that that helps ad rates and and things of the like. So I, I think that's you know whereas. Um, you know, ten ten Winds might have somebody just uh, tune in for the traffic and the weather, and that's it. Um, you know, we have people that are that are sticking with it. You know, some take cases all afternoon. I mean, people is, you know people have stood on hold or stayed on hold for hours trying to get on the air. So, <laughs> so they they stick around. I was wondering, do you uh, edit? Say somebody has a question, and you think it's no no. Uh, there is a dump button in case somebody says something that's not right. So uh, there's a there's a seven second delay, and in some cases the delay is a little, little more than that. But, uh, some, some cases, uh, you know, if, if somebody says something that's that's not nice, that is deemed not nice, so to speak. Let's uh, keep it that way. Uh, it, it gets dumped. Yes. So
3: now that you've been successful, is there a possibility that the for- the format might change a little bit in the future,
4: just as Mike will go on for hours about horse racing and golf. Mm-hmm. Maybe something on soccer.
3: Maybe Mike knows nothing about hockey. Mm-hmm. It would be really nice to have somebody
2: who knows about hockey. I uh, you know what? I, I think that's all in the discretion of whoever is the, the boss uh, or the talent. Um, you know, a lot of people will I'll hear people t- saying to me all the time. Well, Mike doesn't talk hockey. He doesn't know hockey, but. Well, then Mike talks hockey. People say, "Why, why is Mike talking hockey? For? He
3: doesn't know anything about hockey."
2: <laughs> so, so you you can't have it both ways in that regard. Um, but I, I, I think though that you know hosts are probably more inclined to stick with what they're comfortable with, and I also think that too. Um, if you probably did research on it, and the radio stations do, uh, what is the what is the consensus of of your listening audience? What sport do they like the most? Um, You know, in baseball and football, more so football, if you've noticed, football has geared itself to becoming a year-round sport. Um, The season now extends into February, where before it was the last, you know, last week or so in January. Uh, Two weeks after the, or three weeks after the uh, Super Bowl comes the scouting combine. Uh, A couple weeks after that is free agency opens. Then you have the draft, and then you have mini camps. Uh, so, I mean, there's really just a small period of time in the NFL where, where, the, where there's nothing going on. Um, you know, baseball obviously, too, because you are tied up with baseball pretty much from, from Valentine's Day until November. Uh, and then you have uh, the winter meetings and there's some GM's meetings. And, uh, so, you know, it's not quite, uh, it doesn't stretch quite like it, the NFL has figured it out. Uh, but it's still pretty prominent from, you know, February until December.
1: Yeah, I think Mike is smart with, with a lot of uh, what you're talking about, too. Because, and Chris was phenomenal with this, I thought, when he was left alone in the summertime and he had his own <coughs> show. It was Mike and the Bad Dog, but it was just Chris. I think you can use those sports sometimes to your advantage on slow times. Chris would bring up hockey, for instance, and bring up a debate between the best goaltender and the in the league and he would get all those callers going who never called before and next thing you know a slow day in July became four and a half hours of, sport, of hockey talk and, uh, and who knows how many more listeners popped up because I don't think Mike does that uh, as much uh, in fact I know he doesn't but he can and he has that ability to do it and I think you'll, you'll see the passion of the fans of those sports come out of the woodwork when he does talk about that and, and Mike will be the first one to tell you he'll tell the guy on the air well, I don't know about this tell me about it and uh, you know, at that, that, that times, I think when Mike's at his best is when he's allowing the the, the listener to not just say what what's on his mind, but to, to participate and make it more of a two way uh, sports talk conversation.
0: Um, in terms of a uh, career in radio, uh, do you, would you say that it's easier than uh, like
4: broadcasting on television in terms of sports, or and also how um, do you Uh, go about uh, getting your
2: foot in the door. Are there internships? There are. It's all dependent on the station. I know at WFAN they give out internships to uh, those who can receive college credit for it. Um, But For me, it was I started during college um, but now things have changed so much where all you really need is is some sort of microphone and something that will record and you have a recording of your voice and then you can you know, do whatever you want from there. Radio is easier in that regard because um, there's less factors that go into it. Um, I think, you know, when you are involved in TV, it's sometimes predicated on look, uh, sometimes just, just an on-air presence. I think that there's just more involved. Radio, we just turn on the mic and go. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's no thrills. John? Well, uh, I was uh, curious with regards to uh, Hot Callers, or were there certain shows where somebody called in and they got pushed to the front of the line? I mean, particularly in light of the fact that the book's title
1: has a, a caller's name, and I'm just
2: curious. Um, no, they, they, you know, I guess like, uh, I, I think there was a situation a couple of years ago where a guy. Uh, You know, recorded like a month of the prices, right? And he figured out like what the prices were. (laughs) (laughs) And he went on, he was one of the all time winners. It's it's the same thing, people have figured out exactly when to call. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I've been asked that question a lot, but there's, you know, sometimes the callers back in the day in Astoria had the newsroom number, but that didn't, it's a separate number, so. You know, or, you know, someone's like, put me on the air. I'm like, I can't put you on the air. Like, that go a go number, right? There's nothing I can do for you. Well, tell Mike. I'm like, all right, tell Mike, you know. And, uh, so it was, uh, but they just knew when to call, and they called at the right time. I guess they called enough that they that they
1: knew. Uh, so many of them called the same shows night after night, yeah. and that's what Doris did. Uh, she called so many shows, but uh, she, was, uh, she was really a staple of the overnight. And... Uh, Jerome from Manhattan, absolutely, uh, and I think you see you see that family atmosphere with the fans on a lot of shows. But the overnight was a uh, no matter who was doing it was a, was a special time because a you have more time to interact with your callers because there's less ads and less stuff going on. Uh, less callers too. Less <laughs> callers and and there's more um, you know today's day and age with, in, in the internet that's just changed a little bit where you can vent on message boards and on your phone on the way out of the game but you know I think Steve Summers would tell you that a lot of his Captain Midnight show was based primarily on people venting about you know the Mets or the Jets or the Rangers or just you know a couple hours afterwards and uh, he became sort of the sports bar and if you, you need know, a you know, uh, big fan, and you know uh, guys uh, sort of scripting out their calls uh, on the overnight, and, and um, you know I think there was a lot of that with Steve Summers, and and he embraced that, and I think Joe Beningo took that over uh-huh. and inherited that family and kept it going and took it to another level, and uh, I think the overnight, uh, certainly at the Fan, is uh, is a forgotten. Uh, Piece of, of daily life that that really has meant a lot to the station stage. Funny,
2: I, I don't mean this to be critical, but I bring this up more to be humorous than anything else. But I, I have done a few overnights, and and uh, Mark Chernoff, my boss, come up to me shortly thereafter. goes, you know, I, "I heard the show, and you kept the calls on too long." <laughs> I'm like. I I said to him, Mark, it's four a.m. <laughs> without the callers, I had nothing. It's just me so uh, so um, you know, so I thought that was part of it too. I mean, I, I thought that, and, and Steve was also. will will tell you other stories, but um, I, I thought too because. You know the the nature of the time. There aren't as many callers, and I, I figure too. They're they're u- a unique brand of people people you know, who can't sleep. Whether it's people who are up at their job, I, I, there is a certain you know. I don't know what, what what the word I'm looking for is, but there is something where they they, they they've earned that right by right. being awakened four in the morning <laughs> right. or whatever. Um, so I, I always I always thought that um, that was one of them, and uh, it's funny because as I mentioned, you know there are other things. When, when Steve first started, uh, he was the first overnight host at the station back in 1987. You know, I mean it's not it wasn't what it is now. So Steve comes in, and you know there's. You know, those first couple of days, there was nobody there. So the whole the whole reason he'll say, you know, it's you know eleven forty nine and thirty four seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he didn't have anything else to say. <laughs> he said he was running out of things to say. He had to stretch as much as he possibly could. He, the reason he, you know came up with all these things you know saying the number over and over again you know this one behind the glass He just needed something and that, that was it so uh but you know, that's the way so it's, uh, it's funny how things evolve yeah well
1: he definitely learned how to stretch from his his uh his sentences jim Lampley does a really good story about you know when he was <coughs> when he had left the fan and steve started to develop his own brand and and jim still you know keeps a, uh, an apartment here and, is here a lot and Jim has a lot of sleeping problems, and uh, he said, Whenever I have trouble uh, going back and forth from LA and I'm jet lagged and I can't fall asleep, I, as long as I make a good summer's monologue, he puts me right to bed. <laughs> 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 Sam? No. Butch? Me? All right,
3: three things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Keep it sure short, though. Okay, yes, I can get three things. All right.
3: Number one is I agree with Tim, personal experience. Because Hubba Oshkish is writing like me, <laughs> but I pulled that. but Hubba Oshkish discontinued Pro Football Weekly. I used to get a sports encyclopedia, because I used to do corrections, by Neptune Cohen. All those books, people are not going to pay $25 for a book when you can, you know, get like baseballreference.com, et cetera, et cetera. Number two is... Um, there's a book called "Sports on New York Radio: A Play-by-Play History" by David J. Hop. Hel- not not David Hop, the old guy, the young guy. Mm-hmm. And there's well, a I just lot. Happen
2: to see
3: today. he's in town. No, <laughs> no. Something. And and there's a lot of stuff about and <laughs> stuff. And for some reason, Lou Boda, I remember that you know, World yep. Sports used to do in the '70s. The you know, um, and he said that he, he, they say he was very bitter that if this is radio, this you know, he, he I don't know if you guys know about that. They said that he was very bitter. He made mm-hmm. a remark and he left. And the third thing is that. All right. Everybody's entitled to go somewhere else, to make want money, get better opportunities. Rich But you've been with the station for many years. How many years? Uh, sixteen. All right, great. So, if God forbid you leave, all right, release it. But the only problem is that let's say like Kevin Burkhardt, you get we get used to him. He gets the show. Then he gets his own show. He does updates like you, and all of a sudden you're getting used to him. He's gone. Erica Hirsch, what you get used to? Her? She's gone. She came back. A dollar break in It's like. I guess it's like um, like Scott Kazmir. You see him in Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Cyclones, and you think, "Hey, he's going to be a Met someday." And then they trade him for Victor Zambrano. You know, I'm trying to say, you know, we'll stay we'll stay a couple of years. Sixteen, 16 years, Rich. Where did Rich I would, I would really like me to stay. I was <laughs> 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 you? Did you know, like, I say? Like What's that other guy? Said, um, 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 what's his name? Um, he, um, no, no, no. He has last name. Is he hey, Heyman or something? Um, I forgot. Um, the um, the, the, the LeBow or something like that. Adam LeBow. Was, yeah. Then, and he was there for a little while. And then you get used to him. You get warmed up to him. And then he leaves. Well, it's like um, you go to a fancy restaurant. And then you get used to the food. And then, the food, and then they go. You know i no. well, Adam, Adam <laughs> was a freelancer.
2: And, and he was offered a job within the company. At a station in Cleveland, so
3: uh, at least Kevin Burkhart is still in New York. But you know, you get used to some. Erica came back, thank God. You know, you get warmed uh-huh. up. Here, 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 you know, here, like years like, ago, movie Pat, Patricia Crowley. That, uh, here's your newest star, and they, they, you know they don't make it, you. I'm trying to say, you see them, and then the show gets canceled. You know, you know it's it's. You so know. I think that the
1: the fan is certainly a victim of its own success in a lot of ways. And, and Mark Chernoff, you know, I remember in many of my conversations with him is. And Richard would be able to speak to this is that they don't discourage. <laughs> they don't discourage people from moving on because it helps their brand and uh, it allows another opportunity for because you guys are getting flooded with. Uh, resumes and tapes every day. Uh, I don't think that he'd, that he'd like to lose some of the big names, uh, but he certainly keeps it open uh, for people and it keeps it encouraging people to move on because he's, he sees himself as, 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 as right, but he's an eye down and he'll be able to replace that person the next week. And you about move older. You don't
3: know anything about right? that uh, but I just wanted to ask either one of you gentlemen I was just coming through uh, Tim's book on WFAN and I, I noticed that. When I've talked to people in the past, they've always mentioned Marty Glickman. How big the influence of Marty Glickman to WFAN
2: and you in particular, Rich? and uh, I don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you this story about Marty. And, and God rest his soul, he was one of the sweetest men that you'd ever meet in your life. And I was in, an intern during college at uh, NBC Sports and Marty at the time had worked with all the announcers. And so I heard all, how he worked with all these guys and how he improved them and, you know, how he was very blunt, but it was, you know, it was good constructive criticism. And so one day I kind of felt uh, pretty confident, um, and I was on good terms with Marty, um, and he was very kind. So I said, uh, kind of went over to him, and I said, hey, is it okay if I, if I bring you some of my tapes, because I'd always like to get better? And he said, oh, absolutely. I mean, and, didn't even bat an eye. It was really, really very kind of him. And he said, sure, bring him in. He goes, we'll go through him, and I'll let you know what I think. So I said, okay. So sure enough, I come with my tape recorder the next day and a couple of tapes. We start with one of my radio sports sportscasts at the campus radio station. And he says, he says, you're very good. You have nice presence. You speak clearly. You know what you're talking about. You talk a little too fast, but that will correct insult in time sitting to myself and I'm saying ah, this guy's not
3: not so tough he's
2: a pushover that's cake you know look at this I can't be that good <laughs> so then I pop out that that sportscast I put in the next page. it's my play by play you know and for argument's sake I'll just say you know NYU with the ball Smith set to inbound he says stop I said stop I just put it in <laughs> I said, stop I said okay I said stop he goes where is he said, he's under the basket he goes which basket his own. Is he to the left or is he to the right? I said, uh, he's to the right. Did he inbound with a bounce pass or a chest pass? I said, bounce pass. <laughs> uh, he says, where do you inbound it to? I said, on the wing. He says, which wing? I said, the left wing. <laughs> and this went on and on. For a, you know, I, hit, I they said, okay, go to the next one. And then I said, and he hit stop, and I'm like, stop, what happened? Stop, we just got we just started again. He says, you know, is the man guarding him tightly or, or is he standing off him? I said, you Guardian of Titans. Is, uh, is he bigger or smaller? I said, he's smaller or whatever. And and my friend said, about an hour later, I walked out as white as a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, you know, it was good. You know, you had to learn it, and that was the best way. So uh, Marty could not have been uh, more of a mensch. Uh One of the most controversial uh, broadcasters, I think, is... Uh, is uh, Mike Francesca, and uh, the post. I think if you could read all the, the, the different posts, you could probably have a critique of his life. How many times he's gone wrong in, in predictions, and how many things, he, how many things he's done poorly, and so forth. And uh, now he interviewed, as you know, of course, uh, A. Rod, and he got he lost his job there because of it. Well, that's what they say. Uh, what, do, what do you think of him as a broadcaster? It's interesting because it's—I'll I'll defend Mike to this extent, and it's—he's, you know, he's the punching bag. He's the easy guy to take the shot. At. Um, you know, he puts himself out there, and you know, he's not always right. There's, there's no way you, you can't always be right. But the thing that uh, part of it, what makes him himself is—is is the things that whether you love or or, or not. And so I, I think that and I mentioned this to Tim and I can't tell you how many times that people, you know, I met people at events and they were people within the business you know, oh that princess, he's wrong and sure enough at 505 there's this guy on the air with, with, with Mike and I'm like I guess he didn't dislike him that much <laughs> so, I mean, there were people that, 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 you know, for whatever they thought of the show or, or their opinions, uh, knew that it was a a you know, terrific marketing vehicle to be on at five oh five with with Mike and or Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I'm not going to say Mike's a saint, but uh, I, I think that part of what makes him who he is 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 the ego. I mean, I always used to joke, and I think I may have mentioned this to Tim. I I, I, I said if Mike and Chris had any humility, they'd probably be, you know, flipping hamburgers and white castles. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, so that you
2: kind of need a little of that to be who you are and where you are. Yeah. And he's, well, he's, what did
3: you think of that that breakup uh, between the two? I was sad.
2: Group? I mean, I'm not a person. I'm, I'm a person by nature that doesn't like change, um, and I like both of them. And you know, 19 years uh, is is a long time, and you get accustomed to it. And you know, however, you know, there. I, I mean, it's. Whatever reason, whether it was you know greener pastures of, of money or just difficult to carry on a relationship for 19 years, uh, you know Chris and I don't know how much Mike uh, went into it. I'm I'm assuming that Mike uh, Mike wanted to stay, but for whatever reason, you know Chris felt it was it was time for something. I mean, people feel the need and they need different challenges in life sometimes. But at that particular moment in time, Chris felt it was it was necessary to walk away. I, I mean, I was stunned. I never would have thought it would, happen, would have happened, but it did. Um, and I, I'm sorry to a degree because I, I, you know, I like the show and I like Chris and I like working with him and being around him. So, um, you know, he, again, he's not a saint either all the time, but, but for the most part, I, I I really did like working with him and been being with him. So uh, I was saddened by it, but you know what? Um, change is a part of life and they're both doing well and they're both real happy and I think Mike is one of, probably one of the highest paid. Uh, well, they
1: both make a pretty good living. Yeah, they both doing. Yeah. They both doing, they're right. doing very very well. <laughs> that was
4: fun when Chris called in for
2: the uh, 25th. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, and and, and that, you know Mark Turnoff said that that's in the book. I mean, when they get together, uh, whether it's at the Super Bowl or for the anniversary, it's tremendous radio. It's, you know, 15 minutes of tremendous radio. and They'll go on each other's shows, and uh, I think Chris is better when he's on Mike's show than vice versa. But um, you know. I think that at some point you know, Rich mentioned Ego with, with Mike they both have it and you know I think the creation of them being on TV in you know, too, brought them to levels that they probably never even thought even they thought they could imagine uh, Chris became an author he became a fixture on Letterman uh, Mike had his own show on Channel 4 on Sunday nights and, and all of a sudden the Mike and the Mad Dog brand had gone, you know, on multi-platform, multi-platforms and they found themselves having success away from each other uh, but because of each other. And I think Chris probably saw that a little bit more and uh, realized that uh, he didn't want to turn around and be 55, 60 years old still talking about, you know, the Mets or the Jets when he wanted to go out and talk about the Australian Open some days. And I think uh, uh, to find somebody who paid him a lot of money to go do that he, he certainly jumped at that.
2: And also too, um with all the respect to, to that I, I think when when Chris first started his show at Sirius part of his deal was and I also think that, that you may recall it, he was it was his channel and he was going to be the uh, I guess for lack of a better term the program director of I it mean, so I think he liked that but he also liked the fact that they were willing to open up the checkbook and send them to Wimbledon uh, and all the big events that he wanted to go to and, and slowly over time that that cut back a little, and I, th- I think that kind of, you know, hurt him to some degree. Um, I don't know personally, but I think you know he preferred to be out at Wimbledon or whatever. And you know, obviously, just as time went on, probably you know was in the studio more than anything else. So,
1: Tim, can I ask you a business question to follow sure. what Jay was saying? Uh, you, you told us when the station started, but uh, how long was it between
2: the station's start and when it became commercially viable? I mean, how long before they got rid of the Jim Lampleys and Pete Franklins? And oh, that was within
1: two years, and <laughs> even though you know IMAS came and changed the culture almost immediately, uh, you know, it, didn't, it wasn't it wasn't seen uh, everywhere else. So people were still uh, the the. What they hoped with Imus was a they'd bring the Imus crowd, people who were listening to Imus, no matter what station it was on. But they'd also, but that that would also that sports fans, sports listeners, would tune in to a non sports show, Uh, and that took a little bit of time to evolve because Imus struggled with it himself. He came on under the umbrella of you don't have to change your show at all, but as a you know the radio professional that he is. Uh, he knew that he had to. He knew that he had to incorporate more sports, whether he was joking about it or not. He had to get more sports in there to keep the things flowing a little bit, and that took some time. So for a while there, uh, he had some great stuff. You know, he came right in as the Mets were, uh, you know, D team in town. And they were on the fan, uh, so he had a lot of things going for him. Uh, but at the same time, it didn't necessarily result uh, in tremendous success. So it really, it really didn't become the commercial success in terms of ratings and and advertising dollars until they settled on, you know, Mike, uh, you know, I miss in the morning, Mike and Chris in the afternoon, Steve in the overnight and, you know, parlayed around a hundred days of, um, 100, and however many days of, of Mets baseball, uh, and that's when it became sort of the all-encompassing success that it was. By 90, by the 90s, when the Giants won the Super Bowl uh, in, in January of 91, uh, Mike and Chris will tell you that was probably the heading into the heyday of everybody making money, ratings everywhere, dollars. And by the by the '96 Yankees, the, you know they were at a different level. Kind of a follow-up question on that. I mean, was there a, a danger from Jeff Spoolian's, uh Managers that they might kill the station and hurt them? Uh, they were going to pull the plug. Or? Yeah, a couple times they were going to pull the plug. Uh, yeah, he had to fight for it. He spent a lot more time in New York than I think he wanted to. Uh, he went out and sold ads himself. Uh, he did whatever he could do to uh, uh, to give them uh, another chance. and um, He was unafraid to, to take a chance or else we wouldn't be here talking about it. Uh, but it did take a long, long time for, for it to hit. Uh, he had a lot of good people selling ads for him that were uh, dogged in their determination. Uh, but, yeah, there were a lot of times where if, they didn't owe, if, if uh, the folks at MS didn't owe him a few favors or, and uh, didn't have a few dollars backing up those favors, FAN would have made it.
0: And our last question. I know it's broad,
1: but how do you think the Yankees' new deal with the fan will impact things in general? Well, I, I think it's it's uh, it's good and bad for a lot of ways. I think from a culture historical uh, standpoint, uh, I think uh, Fan takes a little bit of a hit. You know, I mean, Sweeney Murphy uh, put it best, and it's in the book that you know if you look at the Fan logo on, on the website or on T-shirts, it, it always seemed to look like it was Mets colors. And I think it, all the fans who listen to the Fan throughout the years can you know can sing that Mets song, uh, and you hear that and you think of Mets baseball, but you think of it being on the Fan. Uh, and that's going to take a while to wear off A. And it's going to take a while for Yankee baseball to uh, to soak in. Now, it's going to be good baseball. It's going to be newsy baseball. It's going to help them monetarily over the long term. So I think from a business standpoint, it was certainly smart. I think from a cultural, historical standpoint, uh, it's going to take a while for that to sink in. And it just goes to show you how quickly radio changes. We were just talking about Mike uh, leaving, yes. And you know, the, uh, you know, I, I, I think I hit send on this book uh, right around August 31st and at the time. And the Mets were still in the fan. Uh, Mike was still on, yes. <laughs> and uh, and now, everything's, now everything's changed. So I'll have to write another book, I guess.
3: actually
0: have a Unfortunately, we're, uh, we're out of time on our podcast. We can continue after that in here if, if Tim and Rich have the time. But for our podcast audience, uh, as you've heard, this is an extremely entertaining discussion, as is the book. I miss Mike and the Mad Dog and Doris from Rigo Park, the groundbreaking history of WFAN by Tim Sullivan, and a special thanks as well to our guest, Rich Ackerman. Thanks so much.